Welcome everyone to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Harries, Sonia Petrovic-Lundberg and Max Pauling to discuss healthcare and tech for powerful intersections to critical industries. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So you've obviously all prepared questions, but before we get into those, we'll have some introductions. So Chris, would you like to kick us off? Uh, I'm Chris Harris, uh, originally from uh, the UK, living in Stockholm now. Um, I'm uh, Head of Infrastructure and an Engineering Manager at Mindler, which is a mental health company. Um, in Sweden, we're, we're expanding as well. Um, my background from a, is an engineering perspective. I was uh, a sort of sysadmin and network engineer by by trade. Still a bit of a techie at heart, but I'm, I've moved more into the, the management world now. Lovely. Perfect. Uh, Sonia, would you like to introduce sub next? Of course. Yeah. So I'm a CTO, Chief Technical Officer at Alpha Science. And Elsa is a company that develops, um, that uses technology to help people with chronic conditions. Right now, uh, rheumatoid uh, diagnosis uh, live their life to their fullest, which means both uh, helping uh, people with the conditions on their own and connecting them with their healthcare providers and uh, helping healthcare providers use their uh, time and expertise better. And my background is uh, not to... Uh, Unlike Chris's, uh, I'm an engineer, a mathematician at the core, and I've worked as software developer um, and a data scientist with machine learning, natural language processing before um, moving more into leadership position. Perfect, lovely. And last but not least, Max. Hello, my name is Max Schoening, and I'm currently the head of backend engineering at Alex Therapeutics. And that Alex will build a standalone digital therapy based on CBT, so mobile applications that you perform your therapy. Um, we currently have two products that are on clinical trials. We're a startup, uh, one to help people reduce their nicotine addiction and one to help people deal with anxiety from receiving a very severe lung disease. And uh, personally, I've worked at Alex for four years, nearly since the start of the company. And previous to that, I've done various things, uh, but mainly actually I worked in sports as a club and national team coach in fencing. So that's me. Nice, nice little fun fact. Um, we'll see if we can get to fencing at the end if there's any questions there. <laughs> anyway, lovely. But now that we all know you a little bit better, we'll get stuck into the questions that you've all prepared. Um, and as usual, work our way around the group, asking your own questions and sharing your thoughts and ideas about healthcare and tech. So first up, Sonia, it is your question. And you asked, does technology reduce human interaction in healthcare or make healthcare less humane? So tell us a bit more about your question. 
Yeah, I uh, stated this question because that's the one uh, I've often heard be being asked when it comes to health tech. And I think it is important because technology can indeed, and we see it often in our world, reduce uh, interaction between humans. And uh, does it that make sense to make healthcare um, more tech-based? And what I like here is going back to a quote from uh, the father of medicine, Hippocrates, from 2,400 years ago, before technology existed in its current form. And one of the things he said was cure sometimes, treat often, and comfort always. And here I'm thinking the always part, the comfort, uh, is not something technology in its current shape and form can do, but which is something which that uh, healthcare professionals unfortunately rarely have time for. So for me, one of the points of using more technology in healthcare is letting technology do the parts that can be done by technology, like documentation, information gathering, information analysis, uh, information transfer, and then let humans do what uh, what health, humane healthcare should be about, which is really indirect. Uh, sometimes a cure, often treat, but definitely always comfort. Uh, and there I also can uh, uh, can give an examples where actually, thanks to technology, healthcare can become more accessible, uh, both remotely, as we've seen, uh, uh, but also time-wise, when it is closer, uh, when it can be closer, it can be more relevant for a person to have a contact, uh, either healthcare information advice or contact with a healthcare expert available where they are at the time when they need it, than uh, needing to uh, be in the same room as the person. But the other is also that we, uh, right now in, in the healthcare systems without technology, there is a lot of time being spent on uh, repetitive information exchange uh, that doesn't bring any extra value or and doesn't increase the humane contact between uh, patients and practitioners. I'll just start there. Uh, and I'm curious what uh, Chris and Max can hear, and then I can uh, also uh, uh, continue my thread later, but uh, yeah, up to the two of you, whoever feels like you, if you have anything to add. Sure. <laughs> like hesitantly jumping in there. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I agree with a lot of what you said, but you also said that, um, um, that, uh, the role of technology can be to like fill in the gaps that, uh, the human interaction, um, uh, leaves, leaves open, I guess. And I think that's for sure is like an important, uh, uh, important purpose for technology within healthcare. Uh, but um, I think there can also be uh, opportunities where um, where technology can sort of step in and do things that the humans can also do. So, for example, uh, for us, I said we will stand it on digital therapies. That means that there is no like connection with the therapist, for example. Um, and this can be like both an uh, advantage or a disadvantage. This sort of depends on the person who's receiving the therapy. For some people, this is this is not a good idea, and they should go to like uh, see a person. But we've also heard a lot of people be very happy about not having to go through the sort of uh, 
uh, to go see a person and talk to them about the problems since we're, we're dealing with mental health. Uh, and I think that uh, this is also an, like an exciting area for t technology to to do something and make it more uh, accessible for for everyone. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think. Um, yeah, I, I I was sort of thinking about various scenarios where um, not having physical contact could be a a benefit, and and maybe these are quite specific and niche, but. Um, if, for example, you're somebody who is struggling with agoraphobia, um, that that could be a um, or, and and social anxiety in general. Um, I think I, I don't have any numbers, but certainly I saw and read about people being a little bit worried about public transport post COVID. You know, I I read um, a story in the in the Guardian of of someone's brother who basically doesn't leave the house even though he's vaccinated with COVID because it's it's left such a an implant on 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 his on his mind, um, and so for those people, I I I might argue that it's maybe more humane um, because those people are actually um, being able to talk to someone. I, again, uh, and the, there's obviously geography here, uh, probably again a quite specific niche example. But if you live in in the middle of nowhere in northern Sweden, you might be a six-hour round trip away from from a, a in our case a psychologist, um, and if that person is deal dealing with quite um, difficult things, um, uh, he, he, then, I mean, this is a very extreme example, but I mean, that person, that could be life or death because um, because it's such a long journey to go and see someone for 50 minutes. Um, so I think in, in those cases, uh, there or, or, or there's lots of cases where it, I would argue it's more humane being, yeah, as you say, Max, giving, giving people the, the, the choice. Um, I guess it de depends on how we define human interaction. And I don't mean that from an English language or any other language perspective, but yeah, often, you know, I read human interaction and my brain immediately thinks face to face. Um, but, you know, I am having human interaction if I have a video call with my mum. I, I agree. Uh, and uh, yeah, right. One, one aspect is uh, the, the, the format of human interaction and they're the opening up for more for formats than face-to-face -face physical contact uh, becomes a question of increased uh, accessibility. But the other, I guess, is also the kind of who is the source of information or help that the human patient or a person who needs healthcare uh, in general is receiving. And then, um, Max, interesting to hear about your user research and experience where even um, mental health care uh, for some uh, people can be more welcome when it comes from a neutral yeah exactly i guess a phone or system compared to uh, to a person maybe there is uh, uh, the aspect of judgment there that uh, one can feel uh, less judged uh, by yeah. technology i'm also thinking about the hot topic and it being uh, part of my background of machine learning and ai and when we have machines start starting to uh, make decisions uh for um uh, for patients like um uh, automated diagnostics or triaging or similar where uh, at least for me that feels trickier and then it's not only the aspect, but th then we have several, several levels of uh, humane in there. One is if uh, the person is receiving 
a hard, uh, hard to understand or hard to cope with kind of information recommendation from the system, then we lose the comfort aspect of healthcare. If, if, it, if there is no human involved, right? Uh, be it rem uh, here, not talking about format, but about format, talking about any kind of uh, human connection. But also, so the, the aspect of, of comfort and coping, processing information, but the other aspect also being of responsibility. Uh, if something is wrong, uh, if, if it is incorrect, then uh, who carries the responsibility, which is one of the uh, um, heavier aspects of healthcare in general. And I also want, but we, we do have the positive example, for example, um, usually in traditional healthcare, uh, part of the healthcare happens during the interaction between a professional and a patient, uh, but then uh, a lot of healthcare happens when patient is on their own. They need to take their medicine or do their the exercises or follow other treatment advice. And then without technology, the alternative that we have in healthcare is paper brochures. Um, but with technologies, then what we can have is a digital companions readily accessible in the patient's uh, pocket, uh, integrated in their uh, everyday life in a much, uh, again, more humane level, even though it's not the person uh, behind them. What do you think about that? I mean, it's a very, uh, what should you say, it's very on, uh, on trend. <laughs> uh, the machine learning part is very exciting also. Um, I feel like it's sort of the same challenges that you have when you talk about AI and machine learning in general, that's sort of, you can come up with many reasons why you want to do this. Like for example, like just getting a better treatment because there's lots of like data-driven smartness behind it. And uh, that's something we've thought a lot about as well. Um, but then like maybe there are differences in sort of which types of algorithms you use like maybe you shouldn't let loose on a like reinforcement deep learning robot into you know some healthcare somewhere and let it do whatever it wants to <laughs> um so maybe i i feel like um there's a lot to think about there before you like b before you start writing the next chat health gpt or something yeah i i uh Consent is also an interesting um, part of the machine learning conversation when it comes to this. Um, I can't remember exactly, but I believe that there were some American healthcare providers who were on this road, and um, you know, there's sort of conversation of well, it's it's anonymized data, you know, we've taken all the personal information out, but again, no one's consenting to this, um, and maybe that doesn't matter um but maybe it does and um and i i also think there's uh yeah i mean it, it i i sort of feel like we as humans are going more that way um especially in certain areas of the world we're looking at declining populations you look at japan and um, for example but people always talk about that with with western europe as well declining populations so there there certainly does seem to be a need to do more with less and and may, maybe ai and machine learning are um some answers to that um but it i think it is a 
yeah it, I, I wrote a lot of notes and actually the machine learning part was not something i'd really considered too much about this but um yeah i mean do, do, yeah i guess uh, consent i think is yeah that's there was a very long-winded way of saying i think there are consent problems here <laughs> yeah and there's also i feel like uh, at least like i'm not a like regulation expert <laughs> But uh, the sort of machine learning within healthcare is very much like not very, not, it's kind of unexplored even within uh, regulatory circles, I think at least. Um, and uh, maybe there's, um, yeah, someone, yeah, there, someone should uh, really think about uh, these things uh, because it, obviously it has to be regulated in some way, just like health tech in general, uh, to avoid uh, some catastrophe. And that's a nice, uh, nice uh, carryover or bridge okay. to the next topic. Uh, so I'm thinking I, I can leave space for that. But just wrapping up that when we introduce technology in healthcare and automate stuff with machine learning, uh, uh, machine learned algorithms, AI, or more um, uh, traditional means of automation, uh, what uh, what I would like. I uh, hope people working with HealthTech keep, uh, keep in mind is which aspects of healthcare are worth automating and which uh, aspects uh, and uh, whether the automation increases the humaneness of healthcare or, or decreases it. Uh, so I would, I would love that to be a parameter when choosing, when making choices, because there's so much, so much automation that can increase uh, humaneness. And uh, that's, I think, uh, what what we uh, need to aim for. Perfect. Well, we'll move on to the second question, and it is yours, Chris. And you ask, do companies using health data need stronger legal and privacy frameworks? So tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah, I um, I had, I, I quite enjoyed thinking about this actually, and and in in the EU and and also also the UK, um, we, we have GDPR. I don't know whether we should feel fortunate or, or lucky or, or just that's what we should expect. Maybe feeling fortunate is the wrong way and just say, no, we this is how we should as, as people expect things to be. Um, but GDPR can can be a, a pain. Um, and sometimes it's a bit like, oh, at work, okay, well, we've got this bit of work. And But, you, you know, me personally, and I, I think it's generally, for especially people in tech would agree, that although you might be like, might think oh okay we've got to move some work around this is a little bit annoying i'm never really annoyed because it's okay it might affect us from a work perspective but it's also me as a human being you know i'm this may be a, this may be a, a bit of an annoyance but as an employee but as a human being and someone who lives here i'm never actually annoyed because i go good you know <laughs> this is also my data that we're, we're talking about as well um, so I don't think we've ever really begrudged working um, with things like that. Um, but, um, you know, data leaks do happen and, um, and frameworks are important. But one thing I was wondering about is um, in the startup world. Um, so you have lo lots of companies that come from, um, maybe they come from education, people doing a master's and they have this idea and they, they want to go live with this um, with, with an app or something um or and sometimes it's people out on the field that work this day in day out and go you know i i feel like if we have a company that can i've got an idea to improve this um and 
the all of the regulations and laws and all of this stuff around it, while while I, I agree wholeheartedly with them and that are great, um, it, it can be a huge burden. You know, if you're um, if you're you know whatever your role is, um, a doctor in a niche field or whatever it is, and you've got an idea and you think right, and, and you get some money, you get some seeding money, maybe you get a developer on board to build it, um, and then you've got to deal with all of these regulations. That can be um, too difficult or maybe it's too expensive. So you might see that a, an idea doesn't go to fruition because it's just too expensive to make sure that you're protecting this data or maybe some corners are cut and they just try and get through it. Um, at the minute, I think that it's great that we have these regulations, but I question how much support that we really give um, sort of people, especially at the early stages. Um, you know, I, I don't know about your two companies, but I, I imagine the statement, you know, we're not banks probably rings true a little bit. It's very easy to, you know, have banks with red teams and blue teams and all of this security stuff, you know, quite expensive CISOs and everything, but um, we're, we're not banks. Um, and lots of, most companies are not banks, for for example, or, or Big Oil or whoever it is. Um, so I, while I support that, I, I wonder if we need, um, maybe not so much stronger legal and privacy frameworks, but actually work underneath the framework to, to help people out. So I'll give you a, a bit of a, maybe a real example that I was, that I've really liked and thinking about. Um, if you want to sell alcohol in Sweden, so you want to open a wine bar, um, it's, there is a lot of work that you have to go through. I mean, you have to, you have to sell food, but not only that, the food, the menu has to be approved by the, um, the board that gives out the alcohol license. You have to pass a test. You have to have lots and lots of food um, inspections. I think it probably adjusts over time, but someone gave me a number if you're selling uncooked meat, or if you have uncooked meat, it could be up to 10 times a year. Um, th there is a lot of work. Um, I know as my partner has gone through this, that was last year. So it takes a lot of work. And I'm not necessarily going to sit here and say that's a bad idea. I'm not advocating that's a good or bad idea. But there was a lot that she had to go through. And actually, the alcohol board were very helpful. They were very, very helpful to her, um, but but it was a lot of work. Now, let's take away the food, sort of the wine thing, and, and let's say that someone wants to make an app or something. Um, now, she knows, or anybody knows, that we have all of these GDPR and everything else that we need to abide by, but um, what is there to really help these people in these situations to ensure that, A, that, um, the, you know, that we're, we're good with businesses and and that we promote this stuff, but also be that people are safe. People um, don't, I mean, people will make mistakes, but we lessen the mistakes and, and, and we give people the opportunity. So I guess my question changed a little bit from not so much stronger legal and privacy frameworks, but more about um, um, the strong and privacy and frameworks, the, the help and the, the, and, and how we, um, how we really, maybe enforce them um, and also help people as well ensure they're enforced and um, uh, and we do a good job of it that, that's kind of my opening gambit yeah i yeah uh, uh, i love it and i love also what that you're a bit questioning and or comparing with a another uh strongly regulated industry 
where there is support. There is not just a strong framework of requirements, but also a strong structure infrastructure to help uh, businesses who are subject to those requirements fulfill them. Uh, also, we can make a comparison with the Swedish tax agency and the US tax agency. It's not the, and Swedes pay a lot of taxes, but it's the second most most loved and trusted agency, I believe, according to the Attitude uh, um, service in Sweden, because they make it easy to do it right, uh, to follow all the rules. And I, I feel uh, when it comes both to GDPR and MDR in in Sweden and the Californian Privacy Act and um, HIPAA uh, and FDA approvals in, in the US, uh, ELSA is um, also science is present in both markets, so we kind of are juggling and trying to both see the overlaps and the differences between all of those. Uh, I agree with you that the frameworks are not always leading to a safer, to safer products. An example that maybe is um, uh, everyone can relate to, no matter the industry, are the cookie consent. Uh, uh, dialogues that we get for every single website where the idea is good, right? We should be able to control what kind of information we as consumers, we as uh, internet users uh, should be able to control what kind of data about us is uh, collected and what it is used for. But the result is that very few people have the discipline and the motivation to go to manage preferences and unselect the data gathering. So it's actually decreasing in a way. We, we, we have the right th theory, but it's in practice very difficult to use that right. Uh, where, for example, again, then if regulations were written a bit more elegantly and if technology was used, I could imagine just it being a setting in my browser or whatever, no website, should, unless I go and put it in a whitelist, should be allowed to use my data for these and these purposes. I'm not trying to change this, but just giving, giving it a, a, as an example. And then similarly in the healthcare industry, at another job uh, I've had, uh, well, also had the responsibility for the security and safety of the platform, both uh, technical security and uh, medical safety. Uh, I actually was forced to remove the firewall uh, used by 70% of uh, the internet traffic in front of this healthcare platform uh, because it didn't follow some letters in the Swedish patient law actually was forced as a responsible for security to make the platform less secure in practice because of the frameworks being written more with legal aspects in mind than uh, the concrete pragmatic technical aspects in mind. And that I think, uh, so for me, strong um, privacy, security, uh, integrity frameworks would need to be uh, strong also from the usability point of view uh, and strict doesn't equal strong in this case. So stronger, yes, stricter, not necessarily. And I'm all for having them. I'm very happy uh, to live in the part of the world where they exist, even though at work they make my work hours much harder. I'm still grateful we have them. Yeah.
I mean, I, I agree with uh, both of you, and we're also in like my my question. We're also going to talk about <laughs> a bit about this. Um, and uh, I also I like I echo what you say about it would be would have like it would have been it would be great if there was like an easy way to find out what you need to do because um like I would say that nearly every serious health tech company they want to have good you know security good privacy they don't want to like leak any data they don't want to expose any patient data like that's that's very very important. Uh, so the regulations are are important, and but the, the the issue is that you know and navigating them, especially if you're in both the US and the EU, like we are too, just like Elsa is. Um, and when you try to navigate them, you sometimes get the sense that like whoever wrote these maybe don't have a super good understanding of software work. Uh, they're often like bunched together with hardware regulations, so you're sort of which is very different if you're a software-only application or if you're like an attachment to hardware or if you're just doing hardware. Um, so uh, I like your idea, Chris, of having a like someone who can help you with implementing all the frameworks. Um, yeah, and also I like to say that uh, the I would like to see like a focus on cybersecurity as well in all these uh, frameworks. Uh, because that's uh, yeah a very important part of the of the uh, of what you want to achieve in practice, right? You want the data to be secure, or if it's leaked, then it's like scrambled or something, and you can't read it. If you achieve this, then you your people are going to be pretty happy. And uh, and actually, uh, I, I, and really, uh, I, I will repeat Sonia here. I will say this because it nicely goes into your your question as well but um in terms of this specific area there's two uh there's two um major um ways to help you or cover yourself in this scenario one which is um it security experts and people who work in the security field and two it's people who work in legal jobs so solicitors both of those jobs uh command quite a high salary um and they're very expensive they're they're often in short supply maybe maybe less on the legal front maybe maybe there's a bit more of them but but you're sort of two options of which you should maybe have both but be good to maybe have one of them at the very least um is very expensive um and and so i i actually think that um we as um employees as, as engineers um as people in the tech company um, need to do um, more. I don't necessarily have an answer to that, and maybe maybe that's maybe, maybe that's in more in your question. Um, but not, there will be a, a generally a need for security and legal experts. Um, but looking at reducing that um, um, from a more of a building sense, how we're building things, is is a way to have better compliance. It's not so much on the legal. Are you doing it right or wrong? Perspective. It's on the the people who are building it. Um, you know, they're giving them support, giving them um, knowing how to build something in a um, that that works with the framework, that works with the the framework and and the privacy. Yeah, and I guess you could either have that sort of from uh, like getting resources from the government or something, but you could also have a um, 
I don't know, association or something that's uh, of of like experienced developers or something and inexperienced trying to develop tools to achieve this could be something to think about I think from the ground up. Yeah, but I'm also thinking or hoping um, if I put my optimistic eyeglasses on that these regulations are rather new, at least their application to software in this way. And um, for example, cybersecurity um, issues or, or the knowledge about them is older. And we already have uh, the, re uh, the rules, the regulations and the tools that the um, state uh, institutions come with are much more usable. And also there are software tools and uh, IT services like penetration testing as a service or uh, security checks or dependency um, controls, uh, vulnerability notices, etc., that have evolved over the last 20, 30 years that make uh, the challenge of keeping uh, IT solutions secure from cybersecurity point of view uh, easier. So I am hoping that the presence and the existence of regulations such as data protection regulation and medical device regulation, etc., will also spin off creative businesses whose focus will be exactly to uh, make this more accessible and easier also for small, medium-sized companies to to follow, but that the um, uh, legal experts will keep them updated and more uh, usable in practice. I, I also want to acknowledge that it is early days and just as we, when we develop software and it is difficult to make it uh, perfect in the first, second, third iteration, it uh, might be similar case for these frameworks. We are happy that we have them. They are not perfect. We need iterating on them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, Max, we'll move on to your question next then. And you asked, how do you do a modern or agile development in a compliant way within health tech? So tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah, I feel like we've already been into some, <laughs> some of this today. Uh, but I think my question is a bit more like on the practical side. Like I'm curious to hear how other people are doing this as well. Um, so we've been uh, sort of, you know, C marking and uh, investigating C marking as well as FDA approval and these things on our products uh, to make them medical devices. Uh, and they are, as I said before, they're software only devices. And um, like when we started, there was one European regulation for medical devices and then there was a transition and uh, something new came up and, uh, you know, yeah, MDD to MDR uh, and um, it's been like, it's not very easy to navigate, which we've been talking about before. Um, and in like, in my experience so, so far, many of the standards that you need to follow to be compliant, they assume a sort of a waterfall style of project management, right? So they're like, yeah, yeah. first you have a name to the purpose, management comes, comes up with this, and then you want to design, and then you have the output, and you make an architect. Yeah, you know you know how, all about the waterfall uh, project management. And uh, we also know that this is um, not uh, considered the sort of modern best practice in developing software. Um, so, um, yeah, so basically I, I'm, I'm curious, like, uh, how do are you, you guys at your companies, how do you handle this? Like, how do you work with 
quality management when it comes to smaller release cycles if you do them or do you just go with the waterfall anyway since that's easier from a regulatory standpoint um i i i absolutely hate this term so uh, but i'm about to use it um dev secops is um is a kind of really that, that i guess that would be um how i would answer it not all of what you've talked about there um but dev secops however much i absolutely hate that term i i think that gets the message across um I think that there's a sort of in that classic waterfall way you talk about um, that you had that, and then if you were doing security, you might have a pen test at the at the end of that release. Um, that's the kind of you know in the olden days. Oh, we're doing security um, now. The, the, the DevSecOps um, I think mantra or mentality is moving things as far left as possible. So if so you go from let's just have a pen test once a year to tick a box to um to actually saying to your developers here's your id ide and we've got a couple of tools that tell you about all the the mistakes you've made and some warnings and some flags to say you know hey um, improve this and often that can be quite simple stuff and and those kind of tools i find uh, are not changing the world they're they're often quite basic things that maybe someone doesn't know is a is a is a problem or um maybe they just have haven't thought about it you know we're all humans um but then having bits in the chain um and and again the, 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 there can be a little bit of a problem that you might slow down your release process because you're doing more tests um that seems to be a you know the the more complicated things get the, the longer everything to, things take so that also is not you know, an easy answer, tick a box and, you know, we're secure, um, a bit like doing a pen test, but having things in, in, in the chain, um, and there's loads of free software out there. There's, there's loads of paid for software as well. Um, Sonia talked about just a minute ago, things are improving. Um, I, I, I've seen things massively improving. I mean, e even in the last maybe six or seven years, I think I've seen huge, huge improvements. Um, before that, it, there was a lot of expensive tools and it was more corporate. Like I mentioned banks, a lot of things that those companies could do, but for us, it was a bit more challenging. We don't, I don't have, you know, 2 million kroner to spend on a tool that may or may not work, but there's loads of stuff now. Um, there's loads of people making stuff to, to try and put in. And it, it might be like a small little Docker container that checks a few things, but there's quite a lot going on in that movement. And I think that's that you're also bringing in. So I think training is also a, a really important thing. Again, you can have people that would do a tick box exercise. Let's get all the developers in a in a room once a year and talk to them about phishing. There we go. We're secure. You know, there is there have been a lot of elements like that. But when you start to say to your engineering teams, um, hey, we're going to put in these tests, check the alerts. People might people will start saying, I wonder what these alerts mean. You know, oh, we keep getting those alerts. Let's make sure we don't make those mistakes when we start programming. And I think that's a sort of informal type of training. It's not the best training, but it's informal because you're you're asking questions. Like a culture of culture. Engineers. Yeah. So um that's that's how I see it, training and and some of these new DevSecOps things. Yeah. Nice, thanks. Yeah. I uh um well uh 
I haven't maybe seen it work yet with continuous delivery and a medical device compliance. So that's kind of one thing to give up. On the other hand, one of the assumptions behind continuous delivery is that you can automatically test for the worst case scenarios and then your users will report, will be your end testers because the harm can't be too big. And then because you have continuous integration and delivery in place, you focus on making the turnaround, the uh, issue resolution time as, as uh, small as possible. But with medical devices, like the harm is up, uh, related to people's health and then you don't want it to be tested otherwise. So for me, it kind of makes sense that in this industry, you need uh, to have extra controls before something reaches uh, the end users than in the other industries. But the under, on the other hand, we know that waterfall, waterfall is not, uh, the world can't afford medical uh, technology being uh, developed in inefficient ways. We need efficiency also in order to be able to do the best out of this technology. And for me, one of realizations after a number of years uh, spent trying to understand uh, these regulations, etc., is that actually they are a bit like really understanding the Agile manifesto. Actually, there is more similarity with the Agile than the eye first catches. Because what we also see all around is one or another flavor of Agile being adopted as is you know, companies just buying a package of rituals. Now we do Scrum and that means that we uh, develop our product in these log iterations and we have these kinds of meetings and we go through these motions. And just the fact that you are taking from uh, a whole package adapted to one context, to your context without really understanding, okay, but what is the purpose of this concrete meeting and does it make sense for me and my team and my organization, etc. makes it again, I mix, mix it against the Agile Manifesto. So similarly, uh, I feel the more time is spent in the organization ensuring that the reasoning behind a certain a formulation in ISO 13485 or this FDA guidance or that FDA guidance, the more helpful they actually become. What's unreasonable is is the, uh, the the time that's now needed to translate it to the modern context. Just as you said, Max, it's so obvious that yeah. it's written for another kind. It's written more often for hardware than software. And then there are the additional st standards that are about the software, but then it's up to every single company, every single startup needs to make the investment of um, correlating this yeah. eight or 12 uh, or depending on the number of market standards and then finding these are the overlaps and this needs to be done extra etc and then one can buy very expensive as you're saying chris uh, consultancy hours but they are still not aware of this company's concrete product organization culture situation so if then that investment is made by a startup, then my experience is actually that implementing AQMS makes the organization more efficient. So one of the most recent things we've, uh, we are uh, doing right now is um, taking design controls requirement from MDR, which is basically 
defining how user needs specific design inputs being requirements, design outputs being specifications, and then different levels of testing. Like the, there is so much wisdom encoded in these regulations. Like they, the regulations are written by experts with decades of experience of how to make high quality products. So it's good stuff. And like the quality management system, one of its objectives is to increase efficiency, not only quality. It's, it's doing both. So when translated thoroughly, just as when you translate thoroughly an agile way of thinking to your organization, that's when it makes sense. It's similar when you translate these regulations to your organization, they make you faster in the end because you have the right kind of documentation, the right kind of checklist at the right point, and also your standardized processes that you keep going through. And it becomes easier also to know who should be trained on what, what kind of knowledge transfer should be done, what are responsibilities, etc. Uh, so I think the end result of implementing something like this, uh, I'm seeing it be make even startups faster, but the fact that every single startup needs to do the translate so much of translation work from scratch is something that uh, i hope will change in the future yeah it's a startup it's a startup time no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> you have to get uh, get going i'm i'm happy you 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 have this experience as well because i think that's the experience we've had too is that once you get this in place it's not that difficult to do it in a sort of agile way I think you mentioned uh, that continuous deliver, and that's not really been like mine or our goal either, because uh, of what you said that it's uh, it can't go out that fast. Like that doesn't make sense. Even if you wanted to make up the rules yourself, you probably wouldn't do it that way. Right? Um, but uh, the problem, as as I see it, is that it, as you and as you seem to see it too, is that it's such a um, it can be a very long process of trying to understand how to do this when in, in in reality it's not that hard and it's also probably good for your business so but it doesn't exist it's not accessible in this digested format no exactly then also what becomes overhead which is not increasing the quality of products that we are building is that the evidence for audit for auditors for the notified yeah. bodies who then need to assure that all companies are following these high regulations the evidence is not harmonized you still need to have, maintain multiple terminologies and multiple kinds of records for the same thing that you're doing yeah and it can and, depend on who you have and maybe as your notified body yeah and the jungle uh, and, and companies spending time on this, companies yeah. spending time on maintaining different different versions of documentation because the standards are not har harmonized. I think nobody wins on that. Yeah. Uh, one one just side um, sidetrack based on, uh, about continuous delivery. I also want to say here uh, one of because you asked for our experiences. So one of the the things that that can be done. Uh, as long as it's archi architecturally sensible, is if parts of the platform that impact medical safety can be isolated from parts of the platform that don't, then the parts that don't impact medical safety can be can follow 
non-regulated processes, or we still have the privacy and the security requirements, but not medical safety. And then you can have continuous delivery of your build pipelines or analytic stack or something like that, but uh, ensure that uh, all uh, layers of testing are done on the health impacting uh, part of the product. But, I mean, that also is that also makes it much easier to do um, reviews. Um, or if you do have an incident, it means you're, um, you might have a, a lower, um, your, the, the areas that might be impacted might be lower. Um, and and that, I think that goes with medical stuff. That also goes with PCI and, and all of those regulatory yeah. things. If you can make it as small as possible, um, you're giving yourself a much better chance of getting it right. And microservice architecture and autonomous uh, platform components is good design pattern in mo yeah. most cases anyhow. Yeah, very interesting. I think that's it for me, Happy. Yeah, you're happy with your answers? <laughs> I'm very I'm very happy. I'm learning a lot and also like hearing that it's sort of uh, it's similar to our understanding is also great to get confirmation of that. Yeah. Good, lovely. Um, well, we've come to the end of you guys' questions now. If anyone's watching and you've got any questions for our panel, you can put them in the comments. Um, but do you guys have any further questions that you want to ask each other whilst we've got the time? No, I, I mean, I, I was kind of wondering... Um, I, feel, I feel like we've, our, your question, me and Sonia, talked quite a lot, Max, and you, you didn't really talk so much um, about about your... Uh, maybe wins or, 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 or difficulties in this area? Um, yeah, I mean, it's been... Uh, so uh, right now, I feel like we're in, in a good place because basically because we found uh, someone who is experienced and can and who works at the company and knows a lot about how to implement this and has done it before. But that's also something that was missing early on in the sort of the startup journey. And it was not easy to get a hold of such a person for a long time. Um, and I think we come back to the what we've been talking about a lot is that it's it's uh, difficult. First, like, is it both difficult to find the resources that has sort of uh, you know narrowed it down more well, what it's all about, and it's also difficult to find the, the right people to to help you. Um, and I think those have been uh, been our 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 difficulties, right? Yeah. And I, I would I mean I would I would kind of assume it's similar to for <laughs> for other other startup health tech companies as well. But yeah, I I agree. Right, finding the right compliance expert, QARA person, has been the the switch uh, in uh, at Elsa and also my previous places really getting in someone who who converts regulations to practice yeah exactly uh, yeah I, I think i can also say exactly the same thing yeah 100 percent. lovely any other questions for each other or any other final thoughts about our podcast topic no lovely well this has been another episode of the evolution exchange podcast then I'd really like to thank Chris, Sonia and Max for joining me today um, and thank you to the viewers and listeners as well. If you fancy joining our podcast, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or via email at abby.stokes at evolution-nordics.com 
Um, but yeah, really appreciate your time, guys. And we will see you next time.